When you think about a greater mission, for example, my mission is to provide housing that's clean, safe, affordable, and functional. I can be proud of what I'm doing. I can be proud of what I'm giving to society. And as I'm fond of saying, if everyone does that, we could abolish the term slumlord. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Keith Weinhold. Guys, I'm so excited to have Keith on the show. Keith hosts the Get Rich Education podcast. It's a real estate investing podcast that started my journey into the real estate space eight or so years ago, back when I was first getting started. I listened to Keith's show very, very avidly, and he really got me inspired to start real estate investing and helped set me on the path. He still has that awesome show today, Get Rich Education, which you should go check out once you're done listening to this show. Today, he's sharing so much great knowledge with us. We're really focusing on what the most important things in real estate investing are and why properties are only the fourth most important thing. We dig into the three things that are more important than the property in real estate investing. We also discuss his story of how he got started as a real estate investor and much more. Keith is a wealth of knowledge. And like I said, he helped me get my start in real estate investing. And I'm honored and really pleased to be able to share his message with you today. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor and I focus on multifamily and self-storage investing. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form and schedule a call, and I will look forward to speaking with you soon. We are here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us every week. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show. That helps us rank higher on Apple Podcasts. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. Once again, our guest today is Keith Weinhold from Get Rich Education. Let's go. Keith, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very excited to have you on the show, and I'm sure we're going to discuss why. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your background, can you tell us about what you do, your show, and how you got started investing in real estate? I'd love to dive into that. Yeah, I don't come from a real estate family. I don't know how to fix broken stuff on a property at all. I am not the person to ask how to fix a leaky faucet. But I went to college, had a job that was just kind of had middling pay that didn't have anything to do with my degree when I was a construction materials inspector. And really, the pivot point for me, Taylor, was two of my five closest friends made their first ever property a fourplex. They taught me how I could get started in real estate with a bang with a fourplex. Now, you, your listeners, you might have heard before the old Jim Rohn quote, you are the average of the five people that you spend your most time with. Well, two of my five were pretty aspirational. They had made their first ever property a fourplex. I learned how I could get into one with a tiny down payment and get in and, and jump in, live in one unit, rent out the other three and, and have all the successes and failures in the real world there. So really, that's how I began with a bang 
from that fourplex building, I learned smart things early from teachers smarter than me that you don't want to pay that debt down on the fourplex. What you want to do is pull equity out and use that to grow through cash out refinances and 1031 exchanges. So that's how I began in a really humble way without a lot of money. Awesome. And could you tell us about your podcast, your show? And for the listeners, just so I, I mentioned this, you know, I started before I ever invested in real estate, I started by listening to your podcast. This was shoot, I don't know, eight years ago or something like that. So it's it's a, a tremendous honor to have you on the show. But tell us about your podcast. Oh, I'm honored to be here on the Passive Wealth Strategy Show. Likewise, Taylor. Thanks for that. You know, I got to admit, I wish I were this successful at everything, Taylor. The Get Rich Education podcast, it's about to hit the 5 million download mark. And I'm like, why can't I be this good at sports? <laughs> but uh, every week since 2014, it's really one of the earlier real estate investing shows, is I've been telling you why most people know that wealthy people's money either starts out in real estate or it ends up in real estate but they don't know how. So you want to abandon these old fashioned notions of building a budget and paying down debt. You know, that's just for normal people. We want to be over here and expand sort of a don't, don't live below your means, grow your means mindset with the most proven way to build wealth ever, real estate investing. And that's what we've been doing every Monday on the Get Rich Education podcast since 2014. Wow, that's incredible. A great show. Everybody should go check out your show. So let's dive into some some real estate specific concepts here. And you sent over a few things to discuss today that I'd love to dive into. The first off being properties are overrated. It's only <laughs> right? the fourth most important thing in real estate investing, which is, what do you mean by that? Yeah, that's a good point. So, you know, when most people think about real estate investing, they think, okay, what property am I going to buy? Here's my guidance. You said it, Taylor, which is what I shared with you before the show here. Properties are overrated. So here's the best piece of guidance for new real estate investors. Stop looking at properties. And what might think, what are you talking about? I, I need a property if I'm going to own real estate directly to produce things like leverage and cash flow and eventually financial freedom. And my point is you, you need to stop looking at properties if you're relatively new to this and pull back and get strategic. The reason properties are only overrated and the reason that it's only the fourth most important thing is because three things are more important than the property. And, you know, Taylor, I think how do maybe novices or someone that's not very strategic buy property, they do it more through chance than they do change in their own strategy and mindset. And by chance, you know, someone might be commuting both days to work and they go past this pretty yellow triplex that's beautifully landscaped that they can see as a rental property and it looks nice and an investor buys it because they kind of fell into the emotions of it. And they figure, oh, well, they could be their own landlord because they go buy it twice a day. So this ought to work out great. Oh, more than nine times out of 10, you're setting yourself up to have a bad experience if you just fell in love with the property because you got emotions involved rather than facts and you bought something by chance because this triplex just happened to be on your commute. So we pull back and think about what's more important than the property. The most important thing in real estate is you. What do you want real estate to do for you? Do you want cash flow, which is a common answer, and it was my answer when I started, or are you looking for leverage or inflation profiting, or do you need tax benefits? You know, what do you want real estate to do primarily for you? So once you figured out yourself, 
The second most important thing is the market that you purchase in. There is more risk with buying property in some hodunk town of only 9,000 people that's far from a metro area where one third of that little town's employment is tied to one industry like the military base or a copper mine. Well, you're going to need tenants to fill your place. And now, you know, one third of your economy is based on the military base where their numbers often go up and down based on a presidential administration or the fortunes of a copper mine and commodity prices are, are rather volatile. So I like to be in the big metros of 500,000 people or more. We have a good diversification of economic sectors where a tenant is going to have a job in these industries that are more long-term resilient, like perhaps medical or technology. So what market, secondly, is going to give you, which is the first and most important thing here, what you want? And then after you figured out you and the market, the third most important thing is your team. And it's really especially that property manager, because you're the passive wealth strategy show. We want to make this passive at some point, maybe not in the beginning, but maybe in the beginning. And a good property manager makes this passive. So look, once you figured out what you want, that the market has sustainable drivers for tenant rent income, and then thirdly, you have a good manager so that you can make this passive. Oh, okay, now you're ready to look at properties. So one, two, three, and four is you, the market, the manager, and the property. And you know, Taylor, what do most people do? They start with the property. They start with number four, they buy the property, and then they try to figure out, oh gosh, I don't like all these tenants texting me from this yellow triplex that I bought. So then they try to find and see if there is a good manager in the market, which is number three. And then they try to find out if they bought in a good market at all, which is number two. And then they go back to one, which is them. So they get it completely wrong. And it's too late then after you've already bought. So that's why the property is only the fourth most important thing in relatively new or sometimes even intermediate investors need to check themselves on that and actually stop looking at properties. That's why. Wow. So that was Fantastic. I love all of that. Let's start with go down the list of, of and dig into each one of those. So number one, understanding ourselves. Is this a, a matter of exclusively understanding our goals and what we want to get back out? Yeah. Or do you also include what am I going to bring to the table in these cases? Because we don't want to get money for nothing, right? What else is in that understanding ourselves? Yeah. I mean, part of understanding yourself is part of a bigger mission. And we're really here to serve others. Entrepreneurs are only profitable when they help others. Do you have a mission that you're proud of serving? I mean, you're not doing real estate for altruism. Altruism might not even be the principal reason. It's probably for profit or the income, or you don't want to be in this. But you think about a greater mission. For example, my mission is to provide housing that's clean, safe, affordable, and functional. I can be proud of what I'm doing. I can be proud of what I'm giving to society. And as I'm fond of saying, if everyone does that, we could abolish the term slumlord. That's the altruistic part. But if you're not passionate about your job, and you might even have a soul-sucking job, we talk about you, that first and most important thing in real estate investing. If you want passive cash flow, you need to be able to, so that you can quit your job someday, you know, you need to be able to have the ability oftentimes to invest outside of your home market because a lot of times those properties that have the best rent yields are in the Midwest and South. So if that's what you want for yourself, you need to be comfortable going outside of your home market. 
How do you get comfortable doing that? It's really with the framework I just described. The most important thing is you and then market manager and property. I don't own any properties in my local market anymore, for example, because it's not going to give me what I want, which is residual income over time. Nice. And your your local market being one that most of our listeners are are certainly not in. You're in Alaska last time I checked. Yes, I live in Anchorage, Alaska. I still do. A city of 300,000 people, but with a declining population, I think now it's 280 some thousand people. And it's not because everyone moved out to the suburbs. It's a true economic and population and job contraction in both the state of Alaska in the biggest city, which is where I still live, Anchorage. Now, I just talked about how the market is more important than the property. So, any listener, they shouldn't wonder why I recently sold my last property. I sold my last apartment building in the Anchorage area last year, Taylor. So, it's the first time I don't own any. And why is that? It's because the market's more important than the property. We're losing population. And one of those reasons, it's similar to what I discussed before. The reason the population is contracting is because the economy is poorly diversified. It has so much to do with oil and Alaskan oil throughput is down. Again, volatiles, rather commodities are volatile. So you don't want to tie too many of your fortunes to a commodities market. So I do all my purchases out of state. Don't invest locally at all. Nice. So let's move on yeah, to number two. You mentioned a few things that you look for in a market, population, jobs, economic diversity, but it's still a big country. There are a lot of cities out there to look into, and it, it could be overwhelming getting started and, and knowing what to look for. So how might we narrow down the list of markets to consider to a handful? Or how do you approach that narrowing down of the country into a couple of cities of target. Yeah, to narrow it down even more, oftentimes the states that have the most advantageous landlord and tenant laws are the ones that you want to invest in that have laws, for example, where you can get a pretty prompt eviction on a non-paying tenant. So this would exclude places like California and New York, where they have what they call professional tenants that know how to live in a unit and just get away with not paying the rent for 12 months. So oftentimes it's metro areas in the Midwest and South. They have laws that tilt toward the landlord rather than the tenant. And they also have the best rent yield. So specifically, including places I invest, I'm talking about places like Jacksonville, Tampa, Memphis, Atlanta, Little Rock, Arkansas, Cincinnati, Ohio, those places in the Midwest and South that are going to give me what I want, again, from that perspective, that the market is more important than the property. Nice. So I own property in Florida as well. And one of the things that I've found, especially in recent years, just to dig into that a little bit, is that insurance went crazy in Florida. How have you dealt with that with your holdings? I've purchased more new build properties. So Yeah, you bring up Florida. Florida has had a real problem with all the hurricanes that they've had and claims such that, you know, I have 1970s built properties, including single family rental homes in Florida, where insurance rates have tripled in the last year. But it's the new build Florida properties, which I'm tilting more and more of my portfolio toward where insurance rates can be one third of what they are in older renovated properties or less. 
But yeah, it is a real problem in Florida, your Florida properties. Now, fortunately, in the past three years, real estate values have gone way up. That doesn't really help you pay higher mortgage rates unless you do a cash out refinance. But fortunately, rents have gone up substantially faster than historic norms. So I'm still making money on those. But really, the strategy in Florida is to buy new build properties rather than renovated, especially if you want to get better insurance rates. You're probably going to get tenants that stay in a place for a long time if it's a new build property as well. So on the specific topic of economic diversity, how do you quantify that? How do you turn that into numbers? Like like looking at the, you know, the pie chart of the industries in a given area or whatever. How do you know what is too big of a slice of that pie chart for one industry to make up? Yeah, that's a good question. I talked about one third of a, a market before. If one third of your metro is tied up in just one place, like a military base or a copper mine, you're probably in trouble. Oftentimes, I don't see any particular slice being more than 15% when we look at the economic sectors and the diversity that that's going to more likely than not bring you a steady income stream. Job growth markets that have a diversification of economic sectors, little or not one economic sector with more than 15% or more of that value. Because of course, once we do buy a property, okay, I mean, we're buying a property partially for the income stream from the tenants that are already in there on the day that you buy. But when it comes to that economic diversification, we're also buying it really that with the expectation that 18 months down the road, there's a reasonable expectation that you're going to be able to fill it with a rent paying tenant. So that's really the importance of the economic diversification in a market. And like I said earlier, you know, you typically need some ballast. You know, I don't even like to invest in places that have population of 30,000 or so if they're an outlying area. It really gets into the point where we have an MSA of 500,000 people or more. Yeah, great. Absolutely. So in terms of digging deeper in a market to understand whether you think about it in terms of zip codes or block by block or, or sub markets or, or whatever, and getting to know these places better, particularly when you're, say, from Alaska and looking at property in Florida or in the case of many of our listeners in California or New York looking in, in, in Florida or elsewhere, how do you dig deeper? Is it all market due diligence trips or is this when you're team starts to come into play and you start roping in your team? How do you dig deeper? Yeah, that's a really good question. How do I dig deeper in buying in a remote market and having the faith and having the confidence to do that? Oftentimes I visit the market in person, but by the time I buy the property, I don't usually go look at the property. I own several properties across the United States that I've never seen and I probably never will see. I have bought properties, owned them, held onto them, sold them for a profit, never saw them and never <laughs> will see them again. So a lot of this has to do with what others think. Forums like the Bigger Pockets Forum will tell you an awful lot about a certain property provider, like a turnkey provider, before you purchase from them. I like to ask on forums like that, you know, who's the right manager? Who's a good manager in this market? And I like to have discussions with property managers before I purchase, not agents. I'm not going to knock on agents. Agents perform a valuable service. I've used and employed agents, you know, including to buy my own home, but they often have an incentive just to want to make a sale where a manager 
when I ask that manager what I can put into that manager's portfolio to make them successful, it shows that manager that I have an interest in them, that I'm vested in their success. And the manager's really going to tell me the truth. You know, he's going to say like, yeah, I know they say that property over there rents for $1,600, but you know what? In that neighborhood, I don't want to manage there because I can't get a respectable <laughs> rent paying tenant there. And I'm like, ooh, this is getting good. See, now I'm really kind of getting that granular touchy-feely information that I need where Google Street View, you know, they still left a question in my mind until I talked to that manager, until that manager told me that. Managers have to collect the rent. Managers have to deal with the tenants. So they're the ones that really know what's going on. So again, with the manager being more important than the property, I try to find out who the right manager is in that market, oftentimes through an online forum. Great. How much do you think about a another important member of the team to some extent is, you know, your your contractor or whoever's going to be doing the work on the property if you're going to be improving it at all? Or do you even think about the a contractor as a key member of the team? And I don't mean to bring them down. I just mean, you know, you, you can hire a contractor and then you're good and you can wait a while. Or do you see them as longer term members of your team who need to be vetted in the same way a property manager does? I'm hands off enough to the point where my manager hires the contractor. But before I purchase that property, I do use a property inspector. I recommend everyone get that third party property inspection. The seller knows it's coming. Don't worry about it. Even in a hot market, I don't recommend skipping the property inspection where a third party company physically goes through the home, gets up on top of the roof, go looks at the furnace, make sure all the doors and windows open and close properly. And then I get that respect inspection report in hand and use any deficiency findings to go ahead and remedy that with the seller before I buy. So I do use a property inspector, but then when it comes to the long-term management and the contractors, if there's going to be a significant amount of work on my property, say more than one to $3,000, I'm going to ask that manager to get me three quotes from three contractors so we can compare the price if it's a big enough item of work. And by the way, I choose my words carefully. I don't ask for an estimate. I always like to ask for quotes because if someone provides you with an estimate, well, okay, well, there can be a range of what you end up paying maybe, and maybe they're still going to want to call it an estimate. But I ask for quotes, at least three, when it gets into a significant amount of work. So that's how I manage that. Interesting. Okay. So up. So you, do you allow your property managers to make decisions up to like $1,000? Because there's a, a limit where it's like, hey, don't bother calling me about this. Just just fix it. Is it 1000 bucks? Is it lower for you? How do you handle that? I'm glad you said that. Many property managers, they do have a limit. There's basically like a blank that you're supposed to fill out inside your management agreement. This is a management between you, the investor, and the property manager. And yeah, like I often have $500 or more. So if an expense is going to exceed $500, you know, the property manager will give me an email. Another trend that I've been seeing in more and more of my properties to help keep down your expenses with the contractor, Taylor, are the tenant is responsible for, say, the first $250 of maintenance or repair per occurrence on an item. That's allowed to fly in more or more contracts. So therefore, yeah, if there is that leaky faucet that costs $200 parts and labor, 
that's responsibility of the tenant, not the owner of the property. So now I might have a range of only $250 to my $1,000 insurance deductible that I'd be responsible for. Interesting. I wonder about that, putting that on tenants. Are, are you in support of that, putting uh, that amount up uh, on tenants? I wonder if that's maybe a formula for, say, a, a running toilet that, that just runs. Doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Well, if, if the owner's paying the water bill, then that's racking up your water bill. But also, number two, that can that can actually lead to clogged plumbing. That can be a really big issue, and I've I've seen that occur in property. So, what do you think about that? Is that a, like a a wise idea, or how can we like make that work? Really? Yeah, I, I see what you're introducing, and it's actually something pretty interesting, Taylor. What if there is a a running toilet, and the tenant thinks, "Oh, well, I don't want to bring that up because then I would have to be the one to pay for that." So we'll just let that go and act like that's not happening. I actually haven't seen that happen very often in my properties. I do a lot of rentals of single family homes. Single family homes seem to attract a better tenant quality than other property types do, although I love apartments for scalability and a lot of other reasons too. And another thing is my manager makes inspections, physical inspections of the units every six months. So they would learn about something like that sooner than later, more likely than not. But yeah, that, that's a good point. Okay. So there are ways to control for it and make it, I don't want to say viable, but, but make it work and, and make sure they're not looking over things that, you know, might wind up making a, being a bigger repair bill in the future. Yeah, that can be managed. And then if they're handling a small expense, like that doesn't even come up. Like, for example, that's not even an email that I need to handle from my, my property manager. The tenant needs to, to do it. And they, the tenant is stating in their agreement with the manager that they are performing those things in a prompt fashion. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Love it. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Are you looking for a way to easily track your rental property finances? Check out Stessa. Stessa makes managing real estate investments simple. You can easily keep track of the performance, finances, and the paper trail of your rental properties. Our listeners can get started for free and then upgrade at any time to unlock their more advanced tools. And the even better news is that the upgrade is very affordable and will not break your bank. Smart investors know that tracking the numbers, tracking the money, tracking the finances is what really drives your success. Check out Stessa. It'll make your property finances easier. Just go to escapingwallstreet.com Scroll down to the Stessa logo and get started for free. Now back to the show. All right, Keith, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Yeah, let's go. Let's do it. Awesome. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? It was in being actionable, in buying that first fourplex building. So let me tell you why it is the best investment I ever made. By the way, I paid $295,000 for that fourplex building. It's the first property I ever owned of any kind at 925 East 45th Court in Anchorage, Alaska. That building still stands there today. That's the best investment that I ever made. And the reason it's the best investment I ever made, and I didn't realize this until a few years later when I put all the pieces together, is when I made a 3.5% FHA loan down payment on that property, uh, a very actionable thing that your listeners can still do today, all you need is a minimum credit score of 580, and you need to live in one of the units at least 12 months. When I did that, I realized that 
I was using other people's money three ways at the same time, which is really how you amplify your wealth. Don't use your own money, use other people's money. I had a 96.5% loan, so I was leveraging the bank's money for the loan, the tenant's money for the rent income to offset all the property expenses. And then thirdly, I was using the government's money for very generous tax incentives at scale on a fourplex building. Tax incentives like tax depreciation and tax deferral on my capital gains. So don't just use your money, use other people's money. You do it three ways at the same time when you get debt on an income property. And that's why that first ever fourplex building is the best investment that I ever made. That's what started it all. Awesome. So we have the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? My worst investment, and I, I think some people in my position would be embarrassed to admit this. They wouldn't want to say this. <laughs> the worst investment I ever made, and this is where I lost the most financially, is I had a third-party custodian hold on to my Bitcoin. Mm. Yes, it's a, it's a non-real estate-related thing. Now, now, my theme is I like to invest in what's scarce, Taylor. Scarce things are real estate, gold, and Bitcoin. I avoid investing in things that are abundant and you can just print more of, like dollars and stocks. So I held my Bitcoin with a third-party custodian, Celsius, but similar to the better-known FTX implosion that occurred last year, yeah. I lost all of my Bitcoin on Celsius. Celsius is one of these crypto exchanges some call them a crypto bank. Bitcoin didn't fail. The crypto bank failed. They were making risky bets when I had my Bitcoin placed there and they lost on those bets. And I lost all of my Bitcoin by having a third party custodian hold on to it. So the hard lesson I learned is to store my Bitcoin on what's called a cold wallet. It looks a lot like a thumb drive, but it's just about three times the size. And that way I hold on to my own private keys. I wasn't hacked, but when I hold it on a third party cold wallet is what it's called, it can't be hacked. And I don't put myself out there and make myself vulnerable to the implosion of one of these crypto exchanges, also known as crypto banks. That really defeats the decentralization purpose of Bitcoin. Because when you hold it on an exchange, what have you done? You have just centralized it again. So that is the worst investment mistake I ever made. And I lost seven figures worth of Bitcoin. Ooh. Ouch. Wow. Well, my favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Yeah. You know, this is perhaps existential and philosophical, but it pays to be a well thought out maverick. So really to be somewhat maverick in what you do, as long as you're well thought out and what you feel in your gut matches up and your head confirms with what you feel in your gut. Diverge from the herd. You can't live an extraordinary life by doing ordinary stuff and making ordinary decisions. We know that all sounds right, but yet, you know, we still drink too much beer and go to a soul-sucking job every, <laughs> every week and put too much there. I had a stable job with government employment, a job that I was not going to lose, a job that had a pension, a job that had 7.2 weeks vacation. And I just walked away from all of that because my soul wasn't in it. And I felt like a replaceable cog when I left that job, when I quit that job. 
yep, sure enough, someone else is going to come in and fill in that same position that I had. I mean, normal is just a synonym really for mediocre. So I want to diverge from the herd. And I learned how to do this by safely building financial freedom while I still had that job. And by the way, I still worked that job about 10 years as I built real estate on the side. So it didn't go that fast. But if I just work at my job and make contributions to a 401k type plan, I'm not building wealth. Inflation, emotion, taxes, fees, and volatility degradate that 10% long-term return from the S&P 500 down to nothing or less than nothing. So instead, I want to get here where I'm using other people's money, using leverage, and building passive cash flow. Definitely something divergent from the herd. When I left my safe government job, almost every coworker I had thought I was nuts, but I had to diverge from the herd. If I want to live an extraordinary life, I had to do something extraordinary. I love that. And I think there's something psychologically important when you get that first hundred, five hundred thousand dollars of passive income through real estate that comes to you or your entities rather than your retirement account. When it's coming to me, wow, okay, this is real. If it went to a retirement account, it's a bit more abstract. I think there's something there psychologically as well. And Keith, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. It's been awesome to to have a conversation with you and kind of bring it full circle, right? Because your show was very important to my start and, and growth in real estate investing. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch, if they want to learn uh, more about what you're up to, find your show, get any you know courses, what have you that you have out there, where can they track you down? Yeah, well, thanks. Listen to the Get Rich Education podcast. Watch our Get Rich Education YouTube channel, which is a different show. Or real estate pays five ways at the same time. I wouldn't even buy property if I didn't expect that it would pay me five ways at the same time. I outlined that in a free video course that you can get at getricheducation.com slash course. So check out that resource or listen to me weekly on the Get Rich Education podcast. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcasts ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.